All right, we should move into our talking points. What are we talking about today? Aren't we already in them? What are we talking about? Oh, I don't know. I've got too many tabs up. Hello and welcome to A Century in Cinema. I'm Arthur. And I'm Andrew. And I'm Kagan. Welcome, Kagan. Welcome, Kagan. And this is a podcast where we discuss a classic film from every year. This year, this week, we're in 1961, discussing West Side Story from directors Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise. As always, you can check our show notes to see where to stream or rent West Side Story. I myself watched it on Amazon Prime. It is a MGM film. As of two or so weeks ago, it now belongs to Amazon. That's right. And that's where I watched it as well was on uh, Amazon Prime. Astute listeners may notice that we have a guest today. Kagan Breitenbach, a film composer who I've worked with in the past on many projects. Kagan, welcome. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Um, Yeah, I've been listening to your show for pretty much since it came out. And uh, it's, it's really cool to be here. And as Arthur said, I've worked on many of his short films, writing the music for them. And um, most recently, our biggest collaboration was Arthur directed a music video shoot. It was actually an entire visual album. So like an hour's worth of, of songs. That project is called Bloody Cabaret. And um, it's very cinematic. We did actually record an, an orchestra for it for several of the songs. So it's yeah. it's pretty damn epic all on YouTube. But that kind of was, you know, my background in music and my kind of love for musical theater is, is what got me on this particular episode. Arthur said, which show do you want to come on? And I said, West Side Story. Which is interesting to me because obviously you love film and music, but I also know that you're a huge fan of horror and i was wondering if you wanted to jump on another episode a horror episode when that was going to come up but you chose this and i think that's just kind of how you know life ebbs and flows uh, our cinematic tastes kind of develop and and change and um well when i was you know 16 to 20 i think i was real cinephile and i was watching more foreign cinema and art house cinema and then i kind of transitioned to being a hardcore you know only watching horror and uh, these days, I am oddly enough veering towards musicals. I'm sorry that the uh, that the racial tensions present in the United States are not horrific enough for you, Arthur. <laughs> Wait, I, what? What? <laughs> oh my gosh! There's someone here laughing at my jokes. This is a good day for me. Well, the horrors the horrors of West Side Story are. Um, we shouldn't jump into this too too quickly, I guess. But there is one particular song in here that is so crass about the racial tensions in this country, but it's a very peppy, happy song. There's something absolutely horrifying about that. Yeah, we'll dive further into that in a sec once we get through the boring part. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) This is so mean. I'm I'm feeling attacked. I'm feeling unappreciated. (laughs) Uh, Wait, Kagan, so what are some of your favorite films? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, kind of keeping in that vein, uh, I I would still say that... uh, in no particular order, I really love His Girl Friday. I've seen it a million times. Love that oh, yeah. film. Uh, there Will Be Blood is one of oh. my, my very favorite films that I just appreciate. It came out at that perfect time in in my life. And 
And then as far as like more of my horror background goes, I think my favorite horror film and mostly just because it's a paradox that I still don't understand is The Shining. And also um, maybe maybe The Ring I'd throw in there as well. I know it's kind of, you know, a, a pretty contemporary film, but I think it's an underrated masterpiece. I agree, man. Well, should we get to the boring part? <laughs> let's, oh my let's God. do it. it so can we get can we get a can we get a time marker for the boring part, please? Yeah. <laughs> I just press that little skip thirty second button until I hear my voice again. Nineteen sixty one. I've got to tell you what's going on this year because it's there's a lot of crazy stuff. I'm excited. Kennedy is inaugurated at the beginning of the year, and from there, the Cold War just escalates and gets much, much worse. You have the Berlin Wall being constructed in Germany, dividing east from west. You've got uh, more movement in the space race. The Soviets put a man in space, and the Americans put a man in space. And then you have Soviet Russia detonating the largest thermonuclear weapon ever tested with Tsar Bomba. And you also have the Bay of Pigs when America tries to finance Cuban exiles, and that goes horribly, horribly wrong. Kennedy takes the blame for it. He's humiliated. It is a terrible situation, which will lead to the Cuban Missile Crisis very, very shortly. Uh, what else we got going on this year? World population hits 4 billion people. Um, that's what I got. Looks like other notable films that came out that year were 101 Dalmatians, Absent-Minded Professor, The Parent Trap, Disney Killing It. Kurosawa releases Yojimbo this year, which is a big step forward in his international acclaim and one of his most entertaining films. If you've never seen a Kurosawa because you're thinking, oh, it's like black and white and Japanese and boring, watch Yojimbo. It is so entertaining, so funny all the way through, and the climax is breathtaking. Did you hear that, Kagan? Arthur, don't even, not on, not on the air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a film that is, is in black and white and I would never recommend to someone who finds black and white films boring is last year at Marion Bod, directed by the great Alain René. Breakfast at Tiffany's is released in 1961, oh, which is a phenomenal film. Um, I just saw that. I love Breakfast at Tiffany's. Me too. One of my favorites. Uh, it has a lot of problematic elements in it, but the Hepburn performance and the writing, it saves it for me. The My all-time favorite Antonioni film is released this year, La Noche. It is about a married couple who go to a party one night. And you watch their relationship disintegrate in real time. It's phenomenal. Um, and then my all-time favorite Ingmar Bergman film was released this year, Through a Glass Darkly. One of the darkest, most twisted movies. And every performance in it is top tier, stellar. The writing knocks it out of the park. It was the first film he made on Faroe Island, which we he would eventually buy and live on. And he immediately understands everything about its landscape and its lighting. It's a gorgeous movie. Highly, highly recommended. Other movies that I won't go so deep into, The Human Condition, The Children's Hour, another great film starring Audrey Hepburn, comes out this year. Judgment at Nuremberg, a really great film. 
Well, to bring a little uh, trash to your class here, Roger Corman's The Pit and the Pendulum, one of his many Poe adaptations. Oh, and Arthur Mothra is released this year. I was going to say it if you weren't, but yes, I love Mothra. Aww. Oh, and we didn't... Sidney Poitier, uh, who we love and support, even though his movie didn't make the cut of the podcast, stars in A Raisin in the Sun this year, and that's a really fantastic film adaptation of a really fantastic play. But speaking of fantastic plays being adapted into fantastic films, this week's film is West Side Story. Yeah, and uh, West Side Story, uh, I'll I'll start us off, was originally a musical on Broadway, and it was kind of a project by author Arthur Lorenz, and uh, Leonard Bernstein wrote the music for it, and kind of in a odd twist of fate the Stephen Sondheim wrote the lyrics for this before he was really anybody and uh, it took a little bit of time uh, for them to raise funding for this project Um, but in 1961 it was made into a film the basic plot of this of course is just Romeo and Juliet Um, but at that time it was a modern retelling set in 1950s Upper West Side, New York. And it centers around two gangs, the Jets and the Sharks, the former of which is kind of the white gang. These are Americans who are descended more of Europeans. And then the other gang, the Sharks, is um, a group of recent immigrant Americans from Puerto Rico. And of course, because it's Romeo and Juliet, at the center of the whole thing is a love story between Tony from the Jets and Maria from more of the Puerto Rican Sharks side of things. Maria, that was her name. I didn't get that out of the film. Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry the Sondheim lyrics oh are so my. penetrating. Sorry the music is so good. That that's actually the, you know, the, I think my most like my biggest note on this just coming out like in all caps in my notes. I just wrote the hits with five exclamation points after that just because I'm going to be honest, one of the reasons I chose to be on this episode is because I hadn't actually seen this before. And the amount of songs from this that I knew, just because they are they are so like ingrained into pop culture now and they have such a timelessness. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's crazy how many there are. Oh yeah. Um, if you're a human living on this planet today and you don't even know what West Side Story is, I guarantee you, you know some of these songs. Um, I'll go, I'll go next. I have a very deep and passionate relationship with this musical. I studied theater for pretty much my entire life, all the way through high school. And in high school, I was in a theater academy, Shades Valley Theater Academy. And during that time, I did so many community shows. And one of those shows uh, was West Side Story. And I played Snowboy, one of the Jets. And it was a really fun role. We did the Jerome Robbins choreography. It was extremely intense. I thought that I was going to break every bone in my body. Although I have the opportunity to name drop a lot, I truly don't try and take it. But I want to because I find this to be such kismet right now. Go for it. Jordan Fisher just announced that he's going to be helping with the reopening of Broadway as the lead in Dear Evan Hansen, which he was playing beforehand before Mm. Broadway closed. And that was just announced this weekend before we recorded this podcast. And he was in that production of West Side Story with me. 
And what? I just wow. thought it was, I just thought it was, so, I saw him do this interview for Good Morning America and perform a number from the show. And that was just yesterday morning. And I thought this is so funny because he has just been on my mind um, as I've been doing my research and revisiting this film. So it's, it's really cool to get to record this the same weekend that he announced that. I love that. Yep. I'm cool. <laughs> But, uh, (laughs) what do you think of the film? So when I was in the show, my director, Kim Hutchins specifically said, don't watch the movie. Um, and then the show was incredible. I won't lie. I still to this day think it's one of the best shows I was ever in. And I was in a lot of shows. I mean, I still am in a lot of shows, but that one was so special. And our Tony and Maria in real life started having an affair slash not an affair neither of them were with anybody but uh and it i mean it was it was just steamy on that stage it was wonderful to witness every night so it, it was just a really powerful show we didn't even have a curtain call because the night we were supposed to rehearse it kim was just sitting there and she was crying her eyes out at the end and thought i think a curtain call is gonna ruin this and so it's the only show i was ever in that didn't have a curtain call and the audience ate it up every night when the curtain would close and the lights would come up a few seconds would pass and then once they realized we weren't coming back out and no music was playing people would just like start clapping and everyone was so moved and then they would find us out at the stage door and um and it was really fun but yeah so i have a very special relationship with the show and then i we all watched the film as a cast together I loved it. It changes a lot. And it was really funny because whenever there was a dialogue change or whenever there was a song change, we would be like pointing at the screen and being like, no, like we were, (laughs) I don't know. It was like so fun. And to this day, that's all very embedded in my brain to the point that I am acutely aware of the differences between the film and the stage version. Are there any like really notable song absences uh, from the film as compared to the stage production? Um, somewhere, the song somewhere that Tony and Maria sing, there's a place for us, somewhere a place for us. In the stage show, that turns into this huge dream ballet where they reimagine how the rumble would have gone and how there could have been peace. And it's a really gorgeous ballet sequence uh, that is completely cut from the film. I do understand why, but I also miss it quite a bit. Yeah, and what I say by understand it is that the film is already two and a half hours long and they were probably already pushing it. And notoriously, this film went over budget and over time. But besides that sequence, even the instrumental stuff, it's all in there somewhere. So it's, yeah, the whole score, all of the songs are kept in the film. A lot of switching around, but we'll we'll be getting to that later. So I think it's in my turn for long enough. Arthur, what did you think of this movie? Oh, I, I absolutely loved it. And I thought it was incredibly well shot. I thought it was just a beautiful yes. looking mm-hmm. film, even though I wanted to note how dirtier and grungier it looked than a lot of the Hollywood musicals we visited in the 40s and 50s. I guess we didn't visit that many. But when I think of something like Singing in the Rain, it just looks nothing like this. This is a very dirty looking film, but it's also really beautiful and colorful. Yeah, I love the use of colors throughout it. I I loved all the performances. The dancing was great. I loved all the fight dancing. So yeah, it was a really well-produced film. It's 
incredibly successful film too. You said it went over budget, so it was about seven million dollars to produce, but it still made forty-four million dollars, and it was one of the top-grossing films of nineteen sixty-one. Just a huge, huge success. I loved it, and like Kagan said, I knew all the songs already. I just had this feeling of deja vu, like I'd already seen this movie a couple of times, and maybe I've overheard people watching scenes, or maybe I've stumbled across scenes on YouTube. But yeah, the cultural osmosis is clearly there. West Side Story and Romeo and Juliet are just ingrained in our culture. So it was really cool to visit it and see it all together. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on the color. I love the the heavy saturation when they use that intense colors. I also I love the blocking in this. I think my favorite shot of the whole thing was actually really early on when you have those like 12 guys on the uh, the teeter totters and and they all just kind of like fly up into frame. It, I was like, wow, <laughs> that is such a brilliant, uh, brilliant, brilliant setup. All those overhead um, shots and the decaying city streets. I thought everything was so well shot. Doesn't New York look so good in this film, even though it's falling apart? Well, actually, one of my big questions, I don't know if either of you looked this up, but the very first uh, location is this sort of basketball court. In the in the first scene, I was like, oh, my God, this was a location shoot. And then as it kind of goes on and you see that place again, I'm like, oh, this definitely was not on location. And I don't I don't know. Oh, that's a good question. To my knowledge, none of the dance sequences were filmed on location because it required okay. hours and hours and hours of rehearsal. But no, uh, those are not yeah, locations. I, I, I will give them major kudos in the in the opening sequence for getting that that daylight lighting so good. Compared like to it, something like The Searchers, where you could easily tell when something was shot on location or when something was shot in a studio. Hey, we are not discussing The Searchers. <laughs> I'm just saying it looks good. I'm just saying it looks good. <laughs> well, at this point, we've already had Douglas Sirk releasing things like Magnificent Obsession and Written on the Wind. And he's shown these because he never filmed on location. And his sets at this point are so gorgeous and look like the real world have full lakes in them and stuff like it's insane what he's doing with sets. At, in the 1961 specifically, he's gone from being a sort of schlocky soap opera director in people's eyes to being a master of the craft. And I think it really shows in a film like this where the sets look so studied and they all look lived in. The mise-en-scene is really well thought through all the way. And, uh, and yeah, you really buy that you're watching New York. We got well. We did general thoughts, and then we. I talked a little bit about the origins of the musical. Well, there's there's so much more though. I want to dive into. Oh that. yeah, go for it. Yeah, please. yeah. So Jerome Robbins, who you will be hearing a lot of on today's episode, he had an idea for a stage musical that used the story of Romeo and Juliet to tell a conflict. We don't know all the details of this story because it's sort of lost to time, but it was concerning mm. themes of anti-Semitism, and there was going to be a Roman Catholic gang and a Jewish gang, and it was called East Side Story. Mm. He had Arthur Lorenz on at the time to be a lyricist and had Leonard Bernstein on to write the music. And that project started to get off the ground. And then there were a few other plays that were released on Broadway that handled very similar themes. And they didn't feel like the project was working in general. So they canned it and it sat dormant for like five or six years. 
Mm -hmm. And then after that time, they came back to it and they started working on a different show. I can't remember what it's called, but it also eventually got shelved. And Lawrence got so frustrated with that process and with working with them and wanted to do his own musical. So he said, there is this up and coming student. He studies under Oscar Hammerstein. Yeah. Of Rodgers and Hammerstein fame. And he really seems to know what he's doing with lyrics. I think he could be very helpful to you. And that ended up working out really, really well, because now you have three in the closet gay men living in New York, (laughs) and they have to write a tragic romance about two people who aren't supposed to be together. And I think it's very obvious it really feels like this forbidden love that everything feels natural about it, but society will not let them have it. Um, the writing process was pretty smooth once it became West Side Story and it became more about the Puerto Rican and white members of different gangs in New York City, which all three of them were pretty familiar with those tensions, having lived and grown up in those areas. And it became one of the largest Broadway shows ever. What's really funny is that when it was released, it was overshadowed by The Music Man, and which came out, I think, just a couple months before it. And nowadays, as far as culture goes, there are some songs from Music Man that people know. But as you both have stated, this score has shown its durability throughout time. Are you trying to say that Maria is more culturally important than 76 trombones? I am. I will. <laughs> I'm a controversial podcaster. As everyone knows, I'm not afraid of the hot takes. And that's, uh-huh. you know, Mary and the Librarian does not do anything when you play it next to I Feel Pretty. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, West Side Story was nominated for six Tonys, but uh, Best Musical went to The Music Man. You know, just another reason why award shows really don't mean anything. We shouldn't give them any credence, but it's all good. It's funny. It's funny that The Music Man came out in the 50s because as far as like the progression of the American musical is going, The Music Man could have come out like in the 40s as far as what it is in some ways. And the composition of it, of course. Hmm. Whereas West Side Story is like pushing some boundaries, honey. Yes. It's like doing what George Gershwin was doing with the jazz and symphonic music, but then it's also blending in the Puerto Rican music. So you have that plus like really crazy percussion. The harmonies and the music are just nuts. Very unintuitive orchestration. I mean, even listen to it, listening to it now, it sound, it has a very cacophonous nature to it the different musical styles of something that's more you know traditional american jazz is used to um underscore uh songs for the jets the the wider gang and then of course all this puerto rican harmony and instrumentation is used for songs like in america it's it's really obvious it's very overt and it uh it it really helps the audience know who is who. You could even tell that kind of in the very opening number. The amount of data that the composer is giving you about who these people are, what you need to think about them, and that there's dissonance between them. And it's just amazing how much information you can get to your audience without them saying anything, really. Would you say that the two styles of music are 
competing for space and it's almost like they're attacking each other a hundred percent they are listen to listen to this guy i have to (laughs) (laughs) i just loved how the percussion in the films felt so violent throughout it it was like punches and kicks and we were at war it was it was very dramatic and that's actually a notable inclusion you know on the broadway production is i think it was about a 30 piece orchestra plus the addition of like five percussionists that aren't typically part of the pit orchestra in your typical broadway musical i also kind of you know i think we probably mentioned a couple key melodies and the intervals that they're using so like maria the first two notes of it are tritone, which is the most dissonant interval in music. Maria. There it is. Thank you so much. That was My beautiful. pleasure. They got to be used sometime. Um, Without going too much into like what, you know, why that's the most dissonant interval, but it kind of, it creates this really intense feeling of longing. It just almost tells the audience how like almost unattainable this relationship is. Or it's hinting at how strong this desire is, how powerful it is to overcome that interval. You know, in the There's a Place for Us, the first interval in that one is a major seventh. And uh, that's also, you know, really dissonant sound. There's a place for us. I appreciate it. I'm glad you're here. And I that, that was so lovely. And, and, uh, yeah, the feeling of that is so, you know, just reaching out. I don't know. It's a great example of how musicals, like using harmony and um, melody, can tell so much to your audience so quickly and make you feel so much. I, I, I think it's so powerful. I love it. Yeah, I had no idea, but I definitely felt it. When you're singing a song like that, you feel inside of yourself when those notes come out. This is a special moment. This is something a little different, especially when you sing a lot of show tunes. When you sing the score from this show, there are certain jumps you have to make and certain melodies you have to go, especially when you're in the ensemble. Some of these harmonies, if you were to plunk them out on a piano solo, you'd think that's not music. Mm -hmm. And that would, of course, only get more and more complex as Stephen Sondheim's career continued. You can tell that was his big takeaway from Bernstein is, oh, stuff doesn't even have to really match. It can just clash and it'll still sound like music. And then he said, that's my whole career now. Nothing ever actually harmonizes and everyone's (laughs) just yelling. And and I mean, he is my he is my favorite Broadway composer. So that's not meant as a criticism. Yeah. And I think it's definitely worth kind of talking about Bernstein's musical background because he he really was not like an Alan Menken and he really wasn't a Stephen Sondheim or anything like that either I mean like this was he only really did a a few musicals what he was most famous for was being a conductor one of the best still known as one of the best American conductors who's ever lived also a composer and his compositional style is it's just genius um it's so uniquely him his only other major you know appearance in film is on the waterfront Hmm. very dissonant actually some mechanical percussive sounds in that score as well yeah i love the score to that film i love that film in general yeah me too there's there's a really good scene from that just like a really great cue where there's kind of like this industrial sound that's being put into it but i almost feel like bernstein's not the sort of 
composer who would have been very suited for film composing. He was just of that more classical world. He was he was more going to write you a symphony and conduct it than uh, be writing a Kiwi film score. Have you seen the video of uh, Bernstein recording this music? Uh, which one are you talking about? He's trying to conduct the guy who has more of an opera register to sing something's oh, yeah. coming. And oh, yeah. the guy's uh, vibrato is holding him back from being able to continue yeah. the song in the right tempo. Uh-huh. And he's uh-huh. slamming <laughs> the conductor stick. He's like, no, no. And the guy is yeah. sitting there like, I am a professional singer. I know what I'm doing. And he's like, not with this music. It's like so good. I think it's so like tense. But, uh, you know, it all worked out in the end. <laughs> to imagine learning music like this when it was first being written from purely sheet music and the conductor sounds unbelievably intimidating. Oh, hold for ambulance real quick. Oh, I hear it. You know, fun fact, the tritone of Maria is uh, uh, the sound that uh, ambulances and police cars use over in the UK. That hot, that hot dissonance. Uh-huh. So those ambulances be going by, Mari, Mari, Mari. Oh, they do. Yeah. One of my, like, small criticisms, I had a little bit of trouble with the vocal performances of the two leads, but I, I kind of had a little bit of Howard Ashman in my ear because he would always say, I'd rather have an actor that can sing than a singer who can act. Having a good performance and good chemistry between your characters was kind of like what was more important to him. I felt like the performances here in in this film, the leads have really good romantic chemistry. I, I mean, this these are the days before, you know, Melodyne and <laughs> digitally helping your performers. But mm. Tony's singing is not, you know, world class. I think it's serviceable. And I thought, oh, well, that's kind of earnest. And, and I like that. Um, and then Maria's voice is almost approaching a little bit more of an opera style. She has like almost a European accent sound. She has like more heavy operatic vibrato. I wonder if those were like intentional creative musical choices to kind of differentiate them more. Did either of you like kind of notice that or? I think that I always give a pass to movie musicals because I never expect them to sound great. I mean, we can kind of use this to kind of transition to this. I know this is later on the notes, but like the state of musicals and kind of where they this is like the very end. It's after the golden age. 1961 is after the golden age of the Hollywood musical, Mm. but it's still kind of like writing the tail end of that. You know, I would say kind of like the apex of the Hollywood film musical would probably be singing in the rain. I would agree. Mm-hmm. We'd start kind of in the 30s and then it kind of really gets to enjoy this time where big budget film musicals are made and they're really, really similar to their onstage counterparts. You know, this is 1961 is really the tail end before rock music is coming into vogue and kind of starts making musicals very uncool. And so and then at the end of this decade is when Barbara Streisand almost reignites the whole industry and then destroys it, which is such an interesting thing. But Funny Girl was released in 1968 and everyone thought, oh, man, the Hollywood movie musical is back. It's huge. It makes a billion dollars. It wins Oscars. It is everything people want still. And we were wrong to try and turn away 
And then the next year, they release Hello, Dolly, which is still one of, like, the largest Hollywood flops. And it kind of single-handedly destroyed the musical genre as far as huge, big-budget Hollywood adaptations went. Uh, yeah, so we're right before that. We're we're in that decade yeah. now. Yeah, and I think I did I did read that Mary Poppins was the highest grossing um, movie, uh, well, musical of the 60s, I believe. But West Side Story is the highest Oscar winner of a musical with 11 nominations and 10 10 wins. wins. Yes, because the highest win is a tie is a three way tie for 11 and none of those are musicals. It is really it is really fascinating, you know, kind of taking in, you know, trying to see this big picture as a century where we started with the musical genre, you know, back with the jazz singer to where we are today. And it's just, it's crazy how, you know, there have been some bright spots along the way, but you have this, you know, one of the highest grossing films of the year wins 10 Academy Awards and movies like that are just not being made today anymore. Probably just not nearly as popular. Yeah. And it does make me nervous about this upcoming Steven Spielberg adaptation of this film, because I do think there is room for another film adaptation of this movie especially when it comes to its depiction of Latino characters who are almost Mm -hmm. all played by white people except for Anita by Rita Moreno. Performance-wise, Rita Moreno was actually my favorite performance in the film. Oh, incredible. Um, One of the first people to ever win an EGOT. I think she was actually the second or third person to win an EGOT ever. And the first Latina woman to win an Oscar. Not the first to be nominated, but the first to win an Oscar for this film. We mentioned Kismet earlier with the Jordan Fisher thing. Another Kismet thing, Rita Moreno did an interview on West Side Story six days ago. Did either of you see that? Are you serious? Yes. It's a really entertaining interview. Um, Highly recommend reading. She talks about how the makeup in this film was the worst because they they put George Shakiris and Natalie Wood in full brown face and... Then they put Rita Moreno in brown face as well because they said that she wasn't dark skinned enough for what they were going for in the film. Uh. What's really interesting, and I don't have any actual proof except for watching the movie and it's very obvious, is that Richard Bamer is also in very thick, dark makeup throughout this whole movie. Okay, so it wasn't just me. I was like... No, 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 no. It's definitely okay. there. But Rita Moreno said that it was like putting caking on mud onto their face. And by the end, they would be sweating and crying. And there would be these streaks of their lighter skin. Even the Latino members of the cast, their lighter skin coming through the makeup. Wow, crazy. If you get a chance to read that. For our listeners, that was a month and six days ago now. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, whenever you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guess that's true. I'm, a, I'm like, <laughs> y'all listen the day it drops, right? <laughs> I, I know I've said this before on the podcast, but it's weird how totally unacceptable blackface is and even was back in the day. And just how casually acceptable brownface is even today. You still see it. And yellowface. I mean, you know, same yeah. year as breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, yeah. So I think the most poignant two songs for me, having never seen this before, were actually In America. Yes. Mm. And then Officer, come on, help me out, Andrew. What, Officer what? Krupke. Krupke, that's right. Because I thought they were both really sympathetic looks at these two different groups and kind of the troubles that they're facing. 
because I, I, I think that, you know, initially when I'm when watching it, I do have, you know, the sympathy towards the, the Puerto Ricans. Things are so unfair for them just because they weren't, you know, born in America and these people that are, you know, oppressing them were o- only came to this country like a generation back. Like there's no difference. And um, th- when I talked earlier about horror in this, that that was actually kind of horrifying because that that particular song is so upbeat and fun, but it's really sad and it's just as poignant today. Wait, which one? Or both of them? Well, more in America. I'm talking first about in America, just about how, you know, you can't get a job unless you pretend you don't have an accent and kind of actually a disturbing song. It was really, really effective. Mm-hmm. And then Officer, why can't I remember his name? Officer Andrew? Krupke. <laughs> Officer, <laughs> Officer Krupke. Gee, Officer Krupke. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really poignant as well because it was, you know, talking about this class of people who feel like they've never had a chance because, you know, they're, they come from these households that are riddled with mental illness and they have, you know, essentially what they're saying, a social disease. And it's just beside the Romeo and Juliet tragedy in the story, there is a level of, you know, there there's a morality tell here of violence begets violence. But at the same time, there's a level of sympathy going on for both sides and a real understanding of why these people are the way they are. It's just damn good storytelling. Yeah, and Officer Krupke is a really fascinating song because it's comedic in tone, but it is telling the story of of incarceration of how we come to terms with this is how you go to prison you know you go to all these different things and people say oh this is what's wrong with you this is what's wrong with you and once none of the diagnoses work and it seems like there's no hope left for you by society and that's just sort of agreed upon by people that you don't know then it's time for you to just go to prison because pretty much that's what happens kagan i can't tell you how good of a transition that is into our next talking point which is discussing transitioning the stage play to film. So I want to go over those two songs you just mentioned, starting with America. In the stage play, that is an all-female song, and it takes place a little bit earlier in the show. Well, Sorry, it takes place a little bit later in the show, because at that point, the men are out having the war meeting already. So it's just the women left behind at home, and they're sort of discussing why they wish they could go back to Puerto Rico. And that's why the whole thing comes from wish fulfillment, because it's all these women who are sort of relying on their men at this point. Mm. And uh, so that's a layer of it. Rita Moreno actually wasn't going to take the role of Anita because the original lyrics in the Broadway show, because it gets really, really spiteful towards Puerto Rico in the original number, it doesn't really bring up as much of the issues in America's racism as much as it is them saying, this does suck, but think about how much worse it was over there. Hmm. And the lyric that she was going to have to sing as Anita was, Puerto Rico, you ugly island, island of tropic diseases. And when she read that, she said, I can't sing that. I wouldn't be able to do something like that to my people who I love. And she wasn't going to take the role. And Sondheim approached her and said, I've heard you've had some 
issues with the lyrics and she brought up the exact one and he said, well, how would you want to go about this song and how would you discuss this subject? And that was how the lyrics ended up being rewritten. And then eventually the film turned into the women arguing against the men. And I think it works so much better, honestly, not just in the film, but I think that it's a better song and in stage production since in every revival since those lyrics have been changed. Officer Krupke and Cool are in, to this day, are in opposite spots in the show. Cool is the song they sing before they are about to go to the rumble. And it's about how you got to keep yourself managed and keep yourself, you know, together so that you don't lose it when you're at the actual rumble. And Officer Krupke, it's a much darker song in that context because murder has already happened and now they are all spiraling and thinking oh no there's nothing else left for our lives and in a moment of attempted camaraderie and comedy they do this sort of hypothetical song where they pretend that they're you know speaking with the officer who has been scolding them the whole time you know as i already said it ends with them all going to prison within the hypothetical story that they're singing about and then they have to just laugh it off because they know that it's kind of inevitable at that point i do understand why that change was made in the film and i do i actually love cool's placement specifically being after the rumble and being this really tense, they are already losing it. And someone is saying, we have got to keep it together. But I do miss Officer Krupke being in that second act. I think the dark comedy of it works even better in that situation because then they sing Officer Krupke and immediately the molestation of Anita happens right afterwards. So it is a very dark sequence. So yeah, uh, those are some really major changes that were made. There were a lot of major changes made to this from stage to screen as you as you would do. Um, one that I personally really miss, and this was one of the ones that when we did the show and we were all watching together, we were yelling at the screen. <laughs> In this one, I don't even... He says womb to tomb and he says birth to earth. Is that right? Yes. What was that? Okay. In the original, in the show, it's womb to tomb. And he says, sperm to worm. And that was all <laughs> of our favorite line in the show. <laughs> and so we watched the movie and he said, birth to earth. We were all like, sperm to worm. Because we all loved that line so much. And I do wish it was in there. But I think you sperm. can't say sperm. I think that's a little too risque for Hollywood in 1961. It, it's funny that you say like uh, the be cool Song. I think that was the only one in the musical, like, because every single song was so purposeful. And when it, every song would start, I'm like, okay, what what are they trying to tell me here? And that was the only one where I was actually kind of, I felt like I was being served a bit of like a, we just need a number here. And and what you're describing to me of how its original placement was makes more sense to me. Kagan, you are killing this because. We're going to use that as a transition into this next part about <laughs> translating the stage. <laughs> you might have felt that way because of its placement, which is which is a fair way to feel. But also, that is one of the only musical numbers in the movie that was not directed by Jerome Robbins. Mm. And I think it shows. The dancing in it is still really cool. The dancing cool, is great. But it's nowhere near the level of dancing in, say, 
the club scene or the opening sequence or even the Officer Krupke number, which is so mm. well choreographed and acted that you don't even notice how tight it is until you revisit it and you realize every single person is dancing this entire number and it looks like they're just running around the stage and play acting, but it's all specifically choreographed. Jerome Robbins, the director writer of the original show was Mm -hmm. brought on to direct the movie adaptation. And he is a choreographer first and foremost before he is anything else. I think his eye for how to capture choreography is displayed prominently throughout the film. That's another thing that modern musicals really miss out on as far as in the 2020s go is the ability to properly capture performance and uh, I do think it's just a little bit missing from that cool number. And it's funny because they're still doing Jerome Robbins choreography. He was consulting Robert Wise during the time that he was fired. Um, I've just jumped around way too it's, much. It's the it's the whole idea of through choreography and through music, you can tell your audience a lot of you can essentially tell your story without words. And I think the choreography and all the other numbers is telling me a story and in in the be cool number it just feels like cool choreography. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. And it was Jerome Robbins' idea to swap those two numbers, so it makes it even more of a disappointment because you can tell he really had a vision for where cool was going to go and uh and we never really got to see it. Sure. To circle back onto why Jerome Robbins got fired. He was a choreographer first. And he was doing these really long rehearsal days and wouldn't even film. And Robert Wise was already hired on because he was known as being someone who could keep films on schedule and under budget. He was sort of just known as a working man director. And he had no idea how to wrangle Jerome Robbins because it seemed like everything he was doing was important. And then they would look at the dailies when they would finally shoot and it would look so good that he had no idea what he could have done differently. However, they were 24 days over filming schedule and they were starting to go Mm. over budget. So they said he cannot be on set anymore. He can't direct this anymore. And the only two songs that hadn't been filmed yet were Cool and Somewhere, which I think is another reason why that Dream Ballet sequence doesn't exist. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense, actually. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that because Jerome Robbins still shared the Directing Academy Award with Robert Wise, and IMDb says it's the first time a directing award was ever shared at the Oscars. That's true, and it's it does need to be said. Robert Wise deserves credit because MGM was not going to credit Jerome Robbins because of all of the drama, and Robert Wise demanded he was because he said that everything that Robert Wise said everything that Robert directed that he himself directed was all inspired by the things he'd seen Jerome already do. And yeah, Jerome Robinson and him were also still in contact while he was filming it. And he was getting ideas from Jerome and hearing the stuff that he wanted to do with the film. And he implemented a lot of it. So Robert Wise would tell you Jerome Robbins directed this film and he mm. made sure that he maintained his directing credit, which MGM did not want to do, but they did because (laughs) Robert Wise made a real stink about it. I don't know all the details. I just know that he did. 
think I think it was a great collaboration, honestly, because even before he got fired, Robert Wise was directing all of the dialogue scenes. And I mm. think the film is pretty seamless. And I think that it comes from the fact that Robert Wise is such a flexible working man's director that he said, oh, I see the style of this movie and I'm just going to emulate that for the other parts of it. Yeah, I can't I can't not say this, but I can't believe I didn't say it at the top. Robert Wise also directed one of my favorite horror films of all time in the top three for sure, which is The Haunting. I love that film. The Haunting is one of those unstated queer voices in horror cinema movies that I love recommending to people. It's a really, really good movie, and it's scary. Every time I watch that film, it gets better, but, I mean, Robert Wise is a guy who directed a great horror film. He directed Star Trek The Motion Picture. He also got an Oscar for The Sound of Music. So, pretty pretty uh, solid director. I do want to point out that Natalie Wood, this is the third film we've watched with uh, her in, in our list. The Searchers and Rebel Without a Cause, she also started. And I do think at three films, she is the actor we have seen the most of in our list. Now, do do either of you know do either of you know the surrounding circumstances of her death? I feel like I've heard about this because I went to a screening of Rebel Without a Cause and they talked about it, but I can't remember. So Natalie Wood notoriously was terrified of water and did not know how to swim and did not enjoy swimming. She was on a holiday break while shooting a film called Brainstorm. And she was at Santa Catalina Island with her husband at the time, Robert Wagner. Or maybe they were already divorced at that point. But they were, they were, they had been together before and actor Christopher Walken. And all three of them were at this island together. There were witnesses who said she refused to get into boats and she didn't want to leave the island at any point. And then mysteriously on November 29th, 1981, she had disappeared and no one knew where she was and she had drowned. And people say that she got into a boat with Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken. But so much of it is alleged and no one really knows all of the details. She drowned in a far... She would have had to have gotten into a boat and gone out there. Evidence points to Robert Wagner drowning her for some reason. But it's all alleged. And to this day, we don't know the actual details. I think HBO just released, I think, a four-part miniseries documentary on it but yeah a really tragic death we had discussed in rebel without a cause how the three main actors all died in very strange tragic ways and this was hers also james dean was originally the one slated to play tony in west side story before he died when it was in early pre-production that's all very weird also elvis presley so we dodged that one I love me some Elvis, but I don't think that would have been correct. I wish we could have still gotten an album of Elvis Presley doing covers of Tony's solos in West Side Story. But Andrew, I don't. can you do an Elvis impersonation singing Maria? <laughs> we can check in on what Bosley Crowther had to say about West Side Story. Our boy Bos. October 19th, 1961. And I can just sum it up here for you if you want. Uh, he loves it. He really, he really loved it. it. Loved it. And he talks quite a bit about how nubile 
and the bodies that are moving gracefully through the scenery. He, uh, yeah, a lot of beautiful bodies up on that screen. Pulsing persistence of rhythm all the way through the film. I don't like yeah, the way he's reading that's, this. That's just, that's just how Boz talks. I do like the call out when he says, although the singing voices are for the most part dubbed by unspecified vocal performers, which is accurate and funny. I was going to ask you about that. So that's true. So the people I know, were not the people. I know Natalie Wood did not do her own singing and we don't know who did. Hmm. Because that information was burned immediately because this was Hollywood <laughs> in the early 60s. Rita Moreno definitely did her own singing, of course. Yeah. I don't and know. And I think, she's the, that, I I think know. she's the best vocalist in the film, too. Yes. Yeah, she's an incredible performer. It's really fun to see her light the film up. Well, sorry, actually, when you guys get to introducing your next film, I actually have a hot piece of I have a I have a fun story. Well, are we done? Are we done with West Side Story? I, I don't know. I was just kind of going through bullet points and I'm like, yeah, we did that. We did that. We did that. And uh, but I'm I'm more than happy to keep talking. I just um, no, I thoroughly enjoyed revisiting this film. I, I'm transitioning into final thoughts. Yeah, you're good. Uh, I fully enjoyed revisiting this film. It brought back many fond memories. And then for that Rita Moreno interview to drop and then for the Jordan Fisher information to drop, I just thought, oh, my God, I am in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. It just felt like everything came together in a really nice, coherent way this weekend. And now I'm having a lovely time discussing this film with two people who I you know, I've just met you, Kagan, but I love talking movies with you. You've got great taste and you're fun to talk to. And, you know, Arthur's okay, too. But um... Well, I hope so, because <laughs> spent a bit of time with it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> it's so it's so nice to get to talk about a film that I do have a nostalgic connection with and take it really seriously and discuss it like this. It's uh, It's really nice. And I'm happy I got to do this. I was so happy to talk to both of you about it because you both brought very, very interesting perspectives Gang, of course, composer, you know music so well. And then, Andrew, you were in the show itself. So I have a greater appreciation for a film that I already loved watching earlier. So thank you to both of you. Yeah, and thanks for having me on. Um, I think this was a great opportunity to finally watch this film that in some ways I'd felt like I'd already seen because it's 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 part of our culture. Its music is timeless. Its melodies are alive and we still hear them all the time. It, it was great to finally get to talk about it and um, experience it. It's a really beautiful film. Let's talk about what we're watching next week. Next week, we are watching the John Frankenheimer political thriller classic, The Manchurian Candidate. And I think Kagan has some sort of hot goss. To go along oh, with I, I I just have a little bit of a bragging point here, which is that I saw The Manchurian Candidate at Grauman's Chinese Theater <gasps> with with the one and only Angela Lansbury introducing the film about 20 feet from her. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and one thing that you should keep in mind when you're watching this is how young a Angela Lansbury is playing the mother character in this film, but... Look up how old she actually is, and you'll notice that Angela Lansbury has been a grandma since she was 30 years old. So. It's, and I want to make <laughs> say this, too, is that I did know that, and I've seen this movie many times. Arthur, Arthur has not, but I love 
I love the Manchurian Candidate. I will just say again to your listeners that um, Bloody Cabaret, near and dear to my heart. And if you want to see something that your host, Arthur, has worked on personally, go go check it out. Yeah, I think everyone will really love it. Bloody Cabaret on YouTube. We're, we're releasing a um, behind-the-scenes documentary series. So if you like what you see, there's a lot of content still coming out. So... I don't have a button. Are we just done? Are we? Uh, thank you, Kagan. Do you do you have any? Thank you. <laughs> I can't emphasize Arthur, how much those hosting <laughs> skills are so hot. I this happens it. at the end of every single episode. He just goes, "Thank you," and I'm like, "Arthur, <laughs> calm down." You say, "Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode of A Century in Cinema." My name's Kagan. This is Arthur, and that's Andrew. And until next time. Oh, and thank you so much, Nathan Royal, for our show's music. It's beautiful, and I love listening to it. And I think of you dearly every time I listen to an episode. Mm -hmm.